Welcome to Influence Me, a series of podcasts where the prime focus is leadership. I'm Assistant Commissioner Andrew Short, and I'm going to be hosting a series of podcasts where I get to interview a variety of guests, both internal and external to QFES. The topic is something extremely important to us, and one that is central to the success of QFES. I want to talk with these guests about leadership, and I want to learn more about leadership from the thoughts and experiences of others. I want to be influenced. My guest today, Kerry Howard, is a best-selling author and psychologist specialising in trauma prevention and treatment. Kerry has won two international awards for her commitment to treating PTSD and improving mental health in Australia. Since 2010, Kerry has presented at a variety of international conferences, including the USA, Europe and Australia. She developed professional development training in the promotion, prevention and early intervention of traumatic injury. Kerry is a former executive level public servant who developed policy and programs in a variety of health focused areas. Kerry's new book, The Trouble with Trauma, provides clear guidance for individuals and organizations about how to resolve traumatic experience. Kerry, it's great to have you with me today for this podcast. Thanks, Andrew, for inviting me. These podcasts for me are are wonderful in the sense that I get to talk to a variety of people on a very wide range of subjects about leadership. As I've come to know, the boundary of discussions for leadership is very broad. And today, I've been chasing you for a while to have this podcast because I want to talk about mental well-being. And I want to talk a bit more about trauma, given that you've now written books about the subject and you've got by now probably clear views about it. First question I'll ask you is, What's been the driver for you? What, what what are the things that have you so active in wanting to help society better in terms of dealing with trauma? I think um, like all things, we tend to come from our own background perspective. I got hit by a bus as a pedestrian when, well, about, it's a bit over 22 years ago now. And I think that did something to my body, not just physically, but understanding my psychological response. I was funnily enough going, I'd gone back to uni as a mature student and I was studying psychology and I was only my first year into the degree and it was probably just as well because I dropped my bundle as a result of bus and it helped me understand much more clearly about how our psychological experiences really can impact our physical body as well. And, you know, I spent a year in therapy. I had two young daughters at the time and I felt suicidal that year. And there was lots of experiences that I just never would have expected that I would have had. I was a pretty sort of strong, forthright human being. I just never expected to feel incapable of managing life as I did after the bus. Nothing like an event. Oh, not like an event to happen to someone <laughs> yeah. to cause people to change their understanding of themselves or their perspective on life. Absolutely. Uh, I've seen this in, in many people. I've seen it in myself. Yeah. So what did, what come out of that? What are the big things that come out of that event for you that had Carrie being different to the person she was before that event? I think the biggest thing was understanding that through that therapeutic process because I spent a year in therapy I ended up after three months having to go on to antidepressant medication not something I ever thought I would have done either but I took antidepressants for about nine months while I engaged in therapy and I think 
it was the combination of both an understanding that I physically needed to function because I wasn't physically functioning. And I think I was a bit surprised at how strong something that arguably had a little bit of an effect on my physical body, but the mental impact was just huge. And I realized how much of it went back to my childhood. And that seemed really strange to me. I mean, I was, you know, I mean, I was only 28. It's strange that things were connecting and linking that you didn't think would. No, exactly. And taking me back to experiences that I'd had in my my much earlier life because of the way the bus had made me feel. And in essence, the bus accident triggered my shame. And so shame is our, as I now know, our lowest vibrating emotion. It's the one that's responsible for the majority of our really, really negative things, in addition to fear, which is the next one. And Brené Brown has written... Yeah. Great lengths about these topics. Yeah, absolutely. And she writes about, you know, vulnerability as well, which is a big thing. But for me, I think I was surprised at how much of those early childhood events came up during the therapy in which I was trying to resolve how I felt about the bus and why I was suffering from post-traumatic stress at the time. I think it was just the highlight that it wasn't a one, it wasn't just a one thing. It was the complexity of my early childhood experiences built on top of the circumstances that I was in and my responsibilities in life at that time, being a young mum, all those things kind of combined. I did spend a year in therapy. I say to people, it was the best year of my life. I think it really helped me to understand though, how complex our healing can be. And it really, in order for me to resolve my underlying emotional experiences. I didn't perfect all of them at that point. I've built on that stuff since, but I think it's just, it really highlighted the awareness that as a human being, we're going to have some challenging experiences at different points in our lives, but we can resolve them. What about before we started, we were talking briefly about how events in life can open doors or commence chapters that we would never have thought about. Mm. Does that mean that you know, the people who don't, maybe they're lucky, they don't have the big events in their life, although there's not too many like that out there, I think. Mm. What does that mean? Does that mean that they go through life with lots of things hidden or lots of things Absolutely. Not and I think not understood. Yeah, no, I think um, we have a tendency to repress things. I think that's a natural part of, of how human beings cope, actually. So we, we tend to, we'll have these experiences, we think we've resolved them, really, what we've done is just push them down, buried them, tried to move forward, move past them. That's not the same as resolving. I think that's a big part of that when we're going to try and do the things to move our things forward. We often just think if we we push them down or we're just overcoming or we're doing something else, it's not the same actually as resolving. People often ask in therapy, well, you know, well, why do we need to? If we push them down and push them away, what difference is it going to make? Or we drink alcohol well, or, or we use other, that, other things to help us through, yeah. That's actually the issue though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So when you don't resolve them, you resort to coping mechanisms. And in the new book I actually talk about there's a whole bunch of things that we do to numb ourselves and that's actually where the drinking the shopping the different addictions that we develop over time come in to help us cope i'm now going to ask you to go towards the book and and people are going to have to get the book and read the book themselves to get all the content however in this short podcast what are the, some key messages around trauma and around people going through trauma and particularly around what people may not know about these events and I'm talking 
like timeframes, critical timeframes. Can you speak to that a bit? So I think one of the things that we don't really understand is that even from a psychological perspective, we don't diagnose a traumatic injury until four weeks post-event, which really annoys me <laughs> because we kind of talk about prevention activities in psychological treatment and yet we don't do any. From the time of an injury, you've got 72 hours before it consolidates in the memory. And part of the way that it consolidates is to do with sleep. So if you sleep before you've done any kind of treatment or, or understanding or unpacking of that traumatic event, then it's likely to be laid down in your memory in a particular way. So let me give you an example. If somebody's gone to an event and they feel responsible somehow for something that happened, we can talk about fire ground in QFES case, or if there's an event that happens where they feel responsible and then they sleep on it, then their sense of responsibility is just going to get consolidated. We need to be able to take people through a particular review of whatever it was that was the traumatic event to determine whether or not they're feeling responsible, ideally before they sleep. So even if after the next day or, or a couple of days later, if you're talking to a staff member who's still reiterating the story, post bushfires last year, I brought out a thing where I, I talk about the need to observe how much you're talking about something are you talking too much or too little so there's a is this something that people can do themselves or, yeah or are yeah. we expecting too much of no, someone i actually i i go i produced some cards last year that they're just called raw and so on the back it's just kind of like the reality check the r stands for reality check was it your responsibility really or observing whether or not you're taking responsibility for something so that's the reality check the second is the awareness it's the a for awareness so, you know, are you talking too much or too little? And then the third is the W is for walk and talk. So what we tend to do when we're traumatized is we'll tell the story over and over and we'll do it when we're sitting down over a coffee with a friend or whatever. If you walk and talk, you, your brain actually allows that bilateral stimulation so that we can resolve whether or not that situation is real. Is it really my fault? Did I do, you know, some basic things? It's a big part of the reason why I say these days we, we, could do a lot of benefit if we just went back to walking our kids home from school <laughs> yeah, yeah. and asking them how their day was because bilateral stimulation, so the movement from side to side in your physical body, actually helps your brain to process your thinking about whether or not something is, you know, in reality your responsibility or not. So now having spoken about the, the critical time periods and that there's a level of awareness that needs to be achieved by not just the person, but by people around them. And because this podcast series is about leaders, mm. my view is that leaders have got a role to play here in terms of protecting or being there for their team at the right moment. Mm. Uh, most emergency services have some very good policy and practice or approach now in place for intervention post an incident so that some choices can be taken. What would you say to a, uh, a leader in an emergency service on how they can make themselves better at helping their team members in moments like this? What, what can they do? So I would suggest that they encourage those people to use some of the things that we have on us every day that we don't even realise, right? So I don't know about you, but I've got a smartwatch. So a smartwatch will allow you to track your sleep. It notices your heart rate. It'll pick up on how much exercise you're doing or not doing. Now, if you've got somebody who post-incident is doing things differently, guess what? The watch is going to pick up on it. 
So the watch is going to pick up if their sleep changes. The watch is going to pick up if their heart rate's up. The watch is going to pick up if they've stopped being as physically active as they were before, which are all indicators that actually something's changed. So even just asking them, have how's your health data looking, right? Because we we just don't. We, we don't, and we don't have to be invasive about it. We just need to make the person who's been in the front line aware that that's something else that they can have a look at. It's also about asking them some simple things, you know, like how's it going at home with the kids and don't let them fob you off just with the, oh, it's okay. It's asking them, were they a bit grumpy? Did they go home and have a few extra beers last night? Those, because they're, they're all standard kind of indicators that something's shifted, something's different. But we, we feel like they're too invasive, that we don't ask those questions. And yet if we just help our people recognise that if those things are happening, if they got into an argument with their wife when they went home last night or their husband, as the case may be, then that's the same deal. It's a, an indicator. It's a point that something's not quite right. And probably goes to the point that constant interaction, constant engagement between individuals, couples, small families, large families, teens, when there's that constant communication going on, when there's an opportunity or a moment where something more pointed needs to be explored, does that mean it comes across a bit more naturally? As opposed to what I'm trying to say here, as opposed to a, a team that's silent. Yeah. And all of a sudden the leader's making a judgment. I need to you know, dig into this a bit here because I don't think this team or this individual is doing very well. Mm. So is at least part of this about what is the normal behaviour of the group? Yeah, I think part of it's about that. But I think the other part is to try and normalise the recognition that before the traumatic events occur, right, we should start having broader conversations about some of the things that we know would indicate that there's a problem, just in general kind of conversations. So people get to understand what the flags are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Start talking about the fact that, you know, sometimes when the stress builds up that it does start to affect your sleep. If somebody starts talking in the workplace about the fact that they're not sleeping very well at the moment, then that's usually a good indicator. Sleep is one of the most really reliable indicators of people's stress. So stress can build up for a range of reasons, not just only talking about the work environment, but if we make it open that people feel that they can be honest about what what they're experiencing personally, even in a professional environment, I think we start to open up the dialogue. And it's such important dialogue. I, in myself, know that when my sleep goes off a bit, it's because I'm trying to reconcile something or I'm not able to get as much influence or control over something that I'd like to. I now see this, but looking back, when I was a bit ignorant about my own ways and my own uh, behaviours and tendencies, I just looked at it as being you know, periods of where I had shitty sleep. Now I know there's some great meaning in there for me. And I even, you know, I'm quite happy these days, share with my team if they ask me how I'm going. I'll say I'm having, I'm having a bit of trouble sleeping. And because I've tried to communicate what that means for me to them, then they start to understand things much better on my behalf or in their efforts to try to be supportive to me. Mm. So it's quite an interesting dynamic. Just conscious of time, organisations have got options in terms of the education that they give their people to help them in these situations. What sort of training is available out there? So I've worked with organisations of different sizes and, and try and develop some bespoke stuff. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to some 
pretty kind of clear and similar approaches. In the new book, In the Trouble with Trauma, I outline what we call the self-management system. So I help people understand that you have a system of parts of self and that you just need to learn to understand them and how to transition between them because it allows you to then address any issue that you've got in any area of your life. When we apply that to organisations, we end up with a broader awareness about if I've got a conflict or if I've got some situation with somebody and I understand the self-management system, I can probably see where I'm coming from. I can also see where they're coming from and it helps us to bridge that gap a lot easier without making a whole bunch of assumptions, which is what we tend to do normally as human beings. So I hate that, by the way. (laughs) I, I see it happen when someone's having a tough time but and when people jump to a conclusion, mm-hmm. they jump to a summary judgment on why that person's behaving the way they are or even a worse assumption of what they think's caused it. Sometimes and, they're projecting too, right? So yeah, it's all about, yeah. you know, well, if I was in that situation, this is how I'd be feeling, so therefore that's how that person's feeling. I yeah, see it all the time. We're very, very good at that. Yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. To, to flex away from us, right? It's yeah. much easier to point the finger at other yeah. people. So I think in an organisation sense, I've, I've developed a 12-week program called Mental Muscle, and the Mental Muscle Method was designed to try and help bring greater awareness to people's ability to develop resilience. We can develop resilience. You know, we do have it in us, a lot of us, but we think what we think is resilient is really repression. And so this is not about just trying to force or build things up on top. And I often say to people, when you look at the foundations of of a building, for example, I see other programs where they're just forcing people to do stuff, you know, like that SAS Australia. I can't stand that show, by the way, because it causes trauma in my brain. But if you try and force a, a building to be built on the sand that's not got good foundations you know it's not going to work right if you want to build a palace you first need to start with good foundations and so this is about going back to the foundations and then building from there yeah one of the things that i'm acutely aware of is as a sector we, we seem to have focused on trauma through the lens of the events that our teams have to go and deal with Mm. And they're, they're, they're awful. Yes, um, they are. Absolutely awful. What really surprised me, going back to the, the 2018 Beyond Blue report, which spoke about how that poor workplace practices and culture are equally debilitating as exposure to trauma. So is it fair to say that all the things we're talking about here don't just apply to those big traumatic moments, but would apply to the moments where within organisations dysfunction poor behaviour, offensive behaviour in some cases can really impact people and therefore we have to think about these treatments or the way we're going to handle it through the same lens as what you've spoken about? Yeah, so the main thing about it is to understand that the reason that traumatic events cause problems is because they trigger shame or fear, right? And, you know, poor workplace culture, shame or fear. And, And really that's the thing. When we talk about disaster and emergency management, sector we we talk about experiences that we have that are out of control right they might be natural disasters or some other thing but it's out of your control the biggest part is it will cause a traumatic injury if within your work something happened that maybe you didn't do quite what you know what you knew you should have or or something along those lines but in essence the events themselves 
aren't necessarily going to cause trauma for people who are trained in that sector, if that makes sense. It does. The main thing is really about the shame or the fear. So I'm either ashamed that maybe when I went to that situation last time I did something not quite right or I should have tried something different. In a workplace, it's the, oh, if I'm constantly being criticised for doing something in the wrong way, even though I think it's right, then I'm going to have the same emotional reaction as I would have in the field facing something that's, you know, pretty confronting. It's just been difficult for society to understand that they are synonymous in the way that the body responds. We love to place things in a convenient package. Yeah. And think that it only applies in certain situations would be the way I would describe that. I'd love to keep speaking with you, Kerry, but given that I try to limit these podcasts to a length so listeners can get through it in a drive in a car or while they're out for a run or whatever they're doing. I've got five questions here which I ask each of my guests and they're not looking for a long answer. They're looking for what comes into your mind and certainly I'm sure you'll get a kick out of at least some of them. The first question is, what do you wish you really understood? It's an interesting one. I probably wish I really understood why people feel the need to claim power. Yeah, that's a real problem. It is a real problem. And and every time I look back at it and I look at how we get to these situations in society where one one wants to take dominance or, or prominence over another, I go right back through my ancient history and go, what idiot started this? <laughs> I don't understand why. If my tribe over here was doing okay and yours over there was doing okay, why on earth did I feel the need to go and take something that belonged to you, mate? I don't get it. Uh, I think that would be more power. (laughs) Um, the, the, The second question is, what do you wish that other people understood about you? That despite my penchant for pink, it doesn't seep into my brain. (laughs) <laughs> and and view, uh, viewers, uh, listeners, you, you, you'll need to go looking for a photo of Kerry Howard <laughs> online to be able to understand that answer. Thank you, Kerry. The third question is, what type of leader do you prefer? And by now you would have seen many leaders in many different settings. I think it's a really interesting, we talk about leadership as opposed to management. I think the type of leader I prefer is one that's open and honest because I think it doesn't matter how difficult a situation is if you can be open and honest with your people and also consultative. So asking them, not just telling them. That's where real, I see true leadership really comes in as opposed to here I've made the decision because I'm the smartest one in the room. I think a really, really good leader goes to their people with, with open and honest with a problem and tries to work together for a solution. Probably a better solution. Mm. The fourth question, in respect to your own development over many years as a professional clinician, in knowing what you know now on this great journey of life, what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself? There was a funny situation at 19 where I met with a TV producer and I had this idea about sort of being Australia's version of Oprah. For whatever reason, it was always one of those things. And he looked at me and he said, Kerry, I think you've got the charisma but where's your credibility? I wish I hadn't gone down the pathway of trying to prove my credibility based on what he'd said to me. I mean, I decided to go back and study psychology. It took me 15 years of my life part-time to actually get to where I am. 
and yet to enter into a profession that I would arguably say gags me in lots of things that I'm not allowed to say or talk about as a registered health professional in this country, which I find very difficult. So probably in I, what I'd say is don't feel that you need to jump through other people's hoops to feel that you can fulfill your own destiny. What is it? Why is it that we see so many people, instead of proving something to themselves, they prove it to someone else? I and think it's, it's it's deadly. I think it's places. a I think it's a human trait. It's actually part of of the way that we raise our children in terms of not trusting their own sense of themselves. We raise them really, and I talk about this in the book, not to trust their own instincts and trust their own body. We we deny them. We tell them that they're not feeling things that they do feel. So I think it, there's a societal shift that really would have to happen to make that a very different thing. But thank you. Great, great answer. The final question here. If you had a magic wand, what's an ability you would give current leaders in our sector and probably beyond right now? in terms of their leadership capability? I would I would love to instill in everybody a sense of that emotional intelligence or awareness with a healthy dose of self-awareness because, you know, seeing it in others is one thing, but recognising it in yourself is something that's really essential for good leadership. That simple expression, how we judge others by their behaviour, yet we judge ourselves by our intention mm. and how we apply that to standards, to a rule. I, I see that quite regularly. I think it goes to, to your point about knowledge of self. Well, yeah. and, and I think it's essential because we often, it's much easier to project onto others than it is to stand and have a good hard look in the mirror. It's much easier to, to see yourself through the things that your people are doing as opposed to, you know, how you're leading them. It seems like a, a, a silly sideline, but... When I talk in the book about trauma and trauma sort of response, I say survival is miraculous, but recovery is a choice. And the awareness that you make a choice for moving those things forward, much the same in our leadership ability, the awareness that the only way you can become a good leader is actually to be more introspective and understand yourself and what drives you to want to sort of help those people get the best out of themselves. Well, what you've just done is help summarise this whole podcast and I appreciate that you, those last few words are very meaningful. I thank you, Kerry, for spending time with me today. I encourage people to go looking for that book, The Trouble with Trauma, if you think you're going to gain something out of it. And I suggest that most people are going to gain something out of it. Even if it's to help yourself or help others around you, I, I would recommend it. So, Kerry, again, thank you very much. You're and welcome. I look forward to seeing where we as a sector, we as a society end up uh, on this journey to uh, helping people through difficult times. Absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, goodbye.